Let's read a couple of passages together. We're moving towards the end of the book now. We're in chapter 9 and uh, 11 today. So page 674. 674. I'm going to read a few verses there and then over the page. So the teacher says... I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who's among the living has hope. Even a live dog's better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will live, They will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it's now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. If you flick with me just over the page, we're going to pick up again in chapter 11, just a few verses there from 6 down to 8. Chapter 11, verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle. For you do not know what will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all. But let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Well, hi there. My name's Kohelet. It's a Hebrew word. It means preacher, although I think cynic is probably a a bit more accurate for me. I suppose the hardest thing about being a cynic is that sooner or later you run out of material. When you've exhausted politics, economics, the media, the music industry, sport, your boss, your work environment, your family, your future career prospects or lack of them, that just about covers everything, doesn't it? There's very little left to be cynical about. The cycle may begin again and again, but there's nothing new. Different faces, but old problems. 
Nothing is as it seems. You can essentially trust nobody. And even the most sacrificial or heartwarming of actions was probably motivated by some degree of self-interest. At least that's the way I see it. I guess I've seen too much of life. I've been disappointed and maybe even hurt too many times. It's easier to expect nothing from life or from no one. And that way, you'll never be disappointed. After all, the whole show's meaningless. Believe me, I've been there. I've had all the opportunities for advancement. I've held the highest offices. I've enjoyed the best wine. I've dated the most desirable woman. I've accumulated massive savings. I've had an investment portfolio nobody could match. And yet, looking back on it, it was so easy and so empty. I've seen through it. It's shallow. There's nothing at the other end of it, so simply enjoy it while it lasts. As for God, well, religion, of course, is the first thing you do get cynical about. Often, uh, preachers will peddle the unprovable. My job is to debunk that, to get people's minds back to reality, keep their feet on the ground. God, and I do believe in Him, and I think most people do, whatever they say, you know, there, there's eternity in our hearts after all. But come on, who is He? God, for me, is unknowable. He's in heaven, we're on earth, simple as that. Nothing could be more different. No gap could be bigger, so don't even try to cross it. And since he's unknowable, how can we predict how he's going to react to any given situation? How is he going to react towards us? We just don't know. We could be the biggest hood on the block or the most squeaky clean saint in the city. Who knows what God will think? Our lives are probably so unimportant to him anyway that how we choose to run our businesses or our marriages or what sort of friend or father we are is probably not that important to him. I've observed a lot of deaths, and the stark fact is that all corpses look the same. And that makes me wonder, can we really know if there's any distinction beyond this life? Doesn't everybody just end up in a hole in the ground? One of my more famous lyrics says, man's fate is like that of the animals, all go to the same place. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upwards or if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Why plan for the future when we don't know what is round the corner? Eat, drink, and be merry. I've told you, I've seen a lot, and I've read a lot, and I'm not stupid, but I know my limitations, and I'm not going to pretend to know stuff I don't. And when it comes to God, we're all left guessing. Who'll ever be able to tell what this whole show has been all about? So why hold yourself back from the full pleasures of this life, fleeting though they are, when there's no guarantee that there's anything better beyond this life than a wooden box? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we might die. That's my advice for what it's worth. Okay, we'll sing the next song. No? Christoph's not even a wee bit worried here. <laughs> so this might be the last time I'm standing up here. But what if the sermon ended there? What meaning has my life that the inevitability of death doesn't destroy. That was Leo Tolstoy, famous author. He wrote that after spending his younger years living a life like the author of Ecclesiastes, searching for pleasure and fame and having 13 children along the way. It's a question worth asking. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes 
who's the ultimate cynic, asks it in a big way. So I encourage you to keep the Bibles open at those chapters that Christoph referred to, chapters 9, 10, and a bit of 11, especially chapter 10, which we didn't actually get reading, because I will be referring to it. And the, the preacher starts at the end, if you like, with the afterlife, and then he works logically backwards. So he starts by saying, we don't really know anything beyond the grave. So you think you can tell heaven from hell? Blue skies from pain, can you tell a green field from a cold steel rail? A smile from a veil, do you think you can tell? Maybe Pink Floyd knew a bit of Ecclesiastes. Might be heaven, might be hell, no way of knowing. We went to see the Lion King uh, this week. Uh, so why, why do a picture of the movie when you can do a picture of one that you took last week in South Africa? I think that guy's just eaten my passport. And I think only Disney could make a feel-good movie where the feel-good message is that we all end up as antelope food. It's a circle of life. We eat them, they eat us. So either hakuna matata, no worries, or know who you are. Is that it? How can we know who we are if we don't know why we're here or where we're going? That was the preacher's dilemma. We don't know. But only one thing is certain. <coughs> death. The certainty of death. Many of us know a lot about that, don't we? Here in our church family, friends, family members, taken too soon. This week, a friend of mine from Vancouver who we spent Christmas evening with back in December, gone, taken. My good friend Jim has preached in this church in the past, lost his wife suddenly at the age of 37. He's a devout Christian. He speaks still to hundreds of students every term about the truth of the Christian faith. When she died, he said to me that he never doubted God's goodness but he did start to doubt his power. Why could he not have prevented her from dying? It's interesting that the ancient Eastern way of looking at it was different. It was the opposite. They never doubted God's power. They could see it all around them. But they doubted his goodness. God maybe was capricious, we could live good lives and he would just snuff us out at the end. Love or hate, says the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Who knows? And so he works his way back. Afterlife, who knows? Death, yes, that's certain. So what about now? What about life? And most of the rest of these chapters are about the uncertainty of life. They paint a picture for us and leave us asking one question. Is there any way we can move from what we do know, the certainty of death, to what we yearn for, a bit of depth? A bit of depth in the midst of the randomness and uncertainties of life. And he paints at least six different pictures for us here. And the first one's from verses 7 to 12 in chapter 9. The insignificance of our actions. The insignificance of our actions. Think of everything we do, the things we spend our energy on. He lists some of them in verses 7 to 10. Food, drink, fashion, makeup, sex, work, making plans for the future, 
Go ahead, he says. Eat well, dress well, smell nice, get married. You might as well. What else is there? This is how he begins his search with the mundane. Verses 11 to 12. It doesn't matter what you do. We all come to the same end, and those who work the hardest may not get the reward. It's a harsh reality. And then there's the fickleness of people, verses 13 into chapter 10, verse 7. The fickleness of people. The preacher's culture really valued one thing, and that was wisdom. If nothing else, try to live wisely. And at the start of chapter 10, he encourages wisdom. But even that, he feels, is limited. It's as if the last rung of the ladder has been pulled away. If even being wise is not enough, then what else do you have if that consolation is taken away? Because here was a poor man at the end of chapter 9. He was poor, but he was wise. He saved the whole city. But people are so fickle, he was forgotten and might as well never have bothered. And this made a great impression on the teacher, he says. Because he was meant to teach wisdom, and everybody knows the value of being wise, verse 17 in chapter 10, 1 to 4. But at the end of the day, verse 18, one idiot can spoil it all. There's always one. Or a fool gets appointed to high office, verses 5 to 7 in chapter 10. Or maybe even elected the high office. And the whole world has gone mad. So what's the point? And then in verses 8 to 11 of chapter 10, there is the randomness of circumstances. The randomness of circumstances. You can be wise. You can even just be going about your normal business and suddenly be overtaken by misfortune. It's not your fault. It's not God's fault. It's just the way life is. This is the picture that's beginning to take shape, and it's pretty depressing. So he says the government is full of idiots, and then you're trying to make an honest living doing a bit of construction work in your backyard, and you fall into a sinkhole, you disturb a wasp's nest, you drop a boulder on your toe, and you chop your finger off. Sounds like most of my DIY attempts. There's a dark humor here. It's humorous, but it's depressing. Because there's also a question of trust. The issue isn't just bad things happening, but bad people causing them to happen. Who can you trust in a world like this? Now, when you first read chapter 10, verses 12 to 20, they may seem like random proverbs or sentences, but I think there is a context and there's a structure here. The preacher starts to despair because he observed something disturbing, verse 5. Something evil, he says. Fools have been given power, verse 6. And also verse 16. I go with the uh, footnote there that talks about a ruler being a child. The ESV has that as well. Simply meaning that fools have been given power or people very young without moral judgment have been given power. And the rest of the verses in this section about fools isn't just about fools in general, you know, like a type of village idiot walking around looking lost. For example, verse 15. But it's about the fool in power. Somebody who's meant to be leading but doesn't know the way to town. 
He couldn't find his way out of a paper bag, as we would say. How can you trust somebody like that? And so what do you get in these verses? Verse 12 to 14, you get fools in power whose speeches are rambling nonsense. Verse 17, there is gross self-indulgence in the ruling classes. Verse 19, money talks. Verse 20, they become paranoid and squash dissent at every turn. And verse 18, the whole house comes tumbling down. Sound familiar? The reformers believe that when God wants to wake up a nation, he gives them foolish rulers. When God wants to wake up a nation, he gives them foolish rulers. And so the preacher reaches the end of this part of his quest, and he tries to come to a conclusion. And in chapter 11, 1 to 6, the recurring phrase is, you don't know, or you can't understand. Life's a gamble. Don't wait for the perfect conditions. Don't watch the weather or the markets. Take your chance. Spread your money around so liberally, and maybe you'll be lucky. Be an entrepreneur. Try a couple of different ventures. Because, verse 6, you don't know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Well, he's pretty much covered all the possibilities there, hasn't he? He was a master in probability theory, old Kohalath. But is that all he has to offer? He becomes quite melancholy in verses 78, quite philosophical, and he tells us to make the best of it. Remember earlier, he told us to enjoy our food and drink and spouse all the years of our miserable lives. But here he's a little more measured. Enjoy the good days because there's going to be enough bad days ahead. Enjoy the good days because there's going to be enough bad days ahead. I think he was Irish, personally. Sadly, I've heard that philosophy too much in our culture. Sadly, I've even heard sermons in churches that have been little more than that. Life's not all bad. Do your best. Look for the good in everyone and whatever happens. I'm not happy with that. What on earth do we do with it? How can we get from death to depth, from insignificant actions, fickle people, randomness, abuse of power, ignorance, to a place where our actions matter, where people are true, where life means something, where we can trust and be trusted, and where we can know and be known? Well, look at chapter 11, verses 7 to 8 again. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eye to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all, but let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. And as a doorway into what I'm going to say now, let's compare those words to the words of Haldir in Lord of the Rings. The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places. But still there is much that is fair, and though in all lands love is mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. Tolkien switches the perspective of Kohalit, the teacher, and instead of saying, the sun is nice when it shines, but don't forget the darkness is coming, he says, yes, the world has its darkness, but there is something greater, brighter, fairer, 
Some of you will know the old hymn lyric, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. So is it just a case that for one the glass is half empty and for the other it is half full? Or is there something more significant happening here? Eugene Peterson helpfully called Ecclesiastes a John the Baptist book. A little bit like what Christoph said about having a wash. And we all know what John the Baptist did. He prepared the way for Jesus. Ecclesiastes sets us up beautifully for somebody who can make sense of this randomness, who can remain true, who can be trusted, who can give us significance. Many of you know that we live by a bay in Strangford Lock. During the storms this week, unusually, a boat ended up away over at our part of the bay, grounded by the seawall. It had broken free from its moorings and was at the mercy of the randomness of the waves and the tides and the channels between the islands of the loch, and it ended up beached. Now, dozens of other boats were also out in the bay, subject to the randomness of the wind and the waves, but they stayed where they were because they were anchored. The voice of Ecclesiastes is the voice of a man who has lost his moorings. He experiences only the randomness and the trouble and the storms of life. He needs an anchor. But like John the Baptist, he sets us up to hear another voice. He sets us up to hear the voice of Jesus Christ, the one who demonstrated his sovereignty over the wind and the waves, who remains calm in the physical storm and in the spiritual storms he faced before his death the one who can be trusted with power because he was prepared to divest himself of that power to serve others. The one whose words are truth. He said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The one who brings significance to life and our actions. The one who said I have come to give you life and life to the full. The preacher said, enjoy the sun because darkness is coming. Jesus embraced the darkness so that we could enjoy the sun and its light forever. Yes, life remains uncertain. None of us know, chapter 10, verse 14, what will happen. But friends, there is an anchor. Yes, death is certain but it is not final. Ecclesiastes doesn't teach us that, but it demonstrates the bleakness of the alternative to get us ready for resurrection. And when we look at the cross, we can't doubt God's goodness. As Tim Keller says, whatever it means, it can't mean that he doesn't love us. And when we look at the empty tomb, we can't doubt God's power. Yes, we say to the writer of Ecclesiastes, there is much that we don't know. But living this side of the cross, we know something very important. That Jesus has decisively revealed to us. And that is the character of God the Father. 
And so to finish, in Christ we can do two things. We can redefine what it means to live well, and we can redeem the mundane. You see, Ecclesiastes can seem depressing because things like food and wine and fashion and relationships and work are divested of their ultimate meaning if they just exist in and of themselves. Because then there's a shadow cast over them by their ultimate meaninglessness. But what if we get the big story first? What if they're all gifts to us to be enjoyed in relationship with Christ and the Father and the Spirit? What if knowing Him is the most important thing? Then these other everyday mundane things can be infused with significance and can really be enjoyed. In a fascinating book, The God of the Mundane, Matthew B. Redmond says this. He writes, I mean, who would want to be a person nobody has ever heard of? What kind of person just goes about their business in this rock star culture? What pastor or pew sitter wants to remain nameless year in and year out in obscurity? <clears throat> what when fame and reputation and notoriety are ripe for the picking? But I say be nobody special. Do your job, take care of your family, clean your house, mow your yard, read your Bible, attend worship, pray, watch your life and doctrine closely, love your spouse, love your kids, be generous, laugh with your friends, drink your wine heartily, eat your meat lustily, be honest, be kind to your waitress, expect no special treatment, and do it all quietly. You want to be a spiritual hero? You want to distinguish yourself? Well, ironically, you have to give it all up. This sounds like lose your life so you can save it for a reason. Being nobody special will feel like losing your life. Maybe the life you've dreamed of in front of the murderer, in front of the pastor, or as a pastor. But to distinguish yourself in our world, you must be happy about being a nobody. He goes on to write this. Are you willing to be found only by God, as faithful and right where you are? Are you willing to live and believe in stark contrast to the world around you that there is a God of the mundane? See, that's the answer to Kohelet. Do all the mundane stuff you suggest, Kohelet. Not because it's the best we've got and it's all meaningless but precisely because it has meaning, and it has meaning only because it's not all we've got. Its meaning is derivative. Its meaning only exists in relation to the ultimate. That enjoyment you crave is only real enjoyment when it is given by God. You see, this is what makes the mantra I hear from teenagers and students so ironic. I just want to enjoy my life. Because the hedonism of Ecclesiastes is a meaningless hedonism. Whereas the holy hedonism of Christianity is permeated with deep joy, deep contentment, deep meaning. Because in Christ we have moved from death to depth. It's not just teenagers and students, isn't it? 
I've come to the conclusion that there are life stages of spiritual crises. I work with one of them students, but there's others I've seen. The empty nester. Suddenly the kids aren't around. Maybe it's less important to be committed to church. They're not there to watch you trying to set an example in prayer and Christian living, so it's easy to drift. I've even met some at that stage for whom the making of more money or the comfort of the summer house or the idolatry of grandchildren or putting one's feet up has replaced spiritual fervor. Some have even said to me, I've done my bit. It's not a biblical concept. Jesus didn't say, take up your cross and follow me until you've done your bit. So don't swap spiritual fervor for what everybody else is chasing at a stage in your spiritual experience when you should know better. Don't swap the ultimate for the derivative. You see, Ecclesiastes is often seen as a spiritual alarm clock for the careless atheist. The careless atheist who comes to see the vanity of the so-called good life and then encounters God in Christ and finally understands what a good life is actually all about. But sadly, I've seen this in reverse. I've seen Christians who have supposedly embraced the true good life in Christ, who in later years grow weary and start to be attracted by the very things that Ecclesiastes has demonstrated to be meaningless. Don't do it, folks. Don't do it. Don't sacrifice the good life for the good life. It'll end in tears, and as you approach the certainty of death, you'll be left with nothing but the philosophy of the preacher. Enjoy what years you have, because that's your lot. In contrast, Christ calls us to faithful, deep living and perseverance in the truth. He came to save us from a meaningless existence and a striving after the wind. He came to save us from cynicism and self-indulgence. He came to save us from the curse of this world. He came to give us life and life to the full. So let us find it in him and in him alone. Amen.